0: Happy Culture Cast Day. Welcome, Alyssa Cohen. How the heck are you? Oh, my God, Maurice, it's fantastic to see you. I'm doing great. I'm excited I'm so to see excited you. I'm so excited to be
1: doing Culture Cast with you. I'm very excited. Right the, on. Soon to be a major motion picture Culture Cast.
0: I think so. I think people always say, well, what is Culture Cast all about? And it's really about chatting with experts about how you cultivate culture where people can thrive. And I'm super excited to have you on board today because I'm gonna admit, I know I see you often, but this is kind of like a fangirl moment for me. It just really (laughs) is. So first of all, we are celebrating the last day of Women's History Month. And Mm -hmm. can I just say how freaking badass you are? You just (laughs) are. So for all of you who probably already know this, which is why you're here live, saying hi to Alyssa is that she is like the number one global coach, per like the guru of coaching, uh, my Marshall Goldsmith organization, why I'm fangirling is really that, like to to become that and to be known as that. And actually, if those of you who tuned in a few weeks ago with our our mutual friend, Dina, I mean, we were just talking about how in awe we are of you, that you were so busy that you were booked at least eight months in advance. It's crazy. It's crazy, crazy, crazy. And so that's why we're here. We're talking about your goodness as a coach. And then also what I call my new Bible and guidebook, which is From Grown Up to Startup, which is an amazing book. If those of you haven't read it yet, Um, and you have it, right? You don't have to be a CEO, by the way, to read it. I think it's just a great leadership guide. And if you want to move from being someone who's really excellent at what you do and then be excellent at what you do and coaching and developing others and leading organizations. I think it's a great guidebook, which we will get into.
1: Um, so, welcome, 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 Alyssa. Where are you today? Oh, my God. Well, thank you for yeah. all those kind words. Amazing. And right back, your badassery right back at you, <laughs> Marisa, of course. And um, I'm in Montclair, New Jersey today, a suburb of New York, where I now share, uh, split my time between New York and and this beautiful Tony suburb here in the cul-de-sac, where I just did a a ruck outside, oh, a ruck and tuck talk with our other mutual friend, Molly Eastman. Oh,
0: my gosh. I love her, too. Wow. Yeah, she's
1: amazing. Yeah. Well, I want to jump
0: into, not immediately the coaching, but let's talk about you, Alyssa. So. I want to understand, like, who are you and how did you end up on the pathway
1: to becoming a
0: coach? Let's talk
1: about that. <laughs> I, well, thanks for asking. I mean, it is absolutely true that it's like you don't, when you're a little girl, you don't think about going to, be, going to be a coach. You might be like thinking about a doctor, a lawyer, or, you know, something like that. So like, what is a coach even, right? So I'm going to yeah. start by saying, what is a coach? A coach is somebody who helps you think about where are you, where are you going, and how will you get there? It's a strategic partner that walks beside you to help you achieve your goals. Now, I'm an executive coach so that happens to be in the context of leadership and sort of the overall overall culture, right? And overall um, kind of a, a, a business context. So I didn't know about that, but I was um, I, 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 before I went to business school. I was um, the chief of staff to the provost at a New England college. And I had this moment of truth when the provost said, at some point, you can't manage faculty because they have tenure. Hmm. And I thought, huh, like, right, like, what does that mean? And even then, I was pretty young. I was actually, was one of my early jobs out of school, and I was pretty young. But even then, I knew they can't be that way, that people will only do what you want them to do, and if they don't, you'll fire them. Right. The only, yeah. or, the, or because you'll fire them if, if they don't. So I kind of went off to business school thinking about, you know, why people do things in alignment with organizations and wh- or or sadly why they don't. And then I got all turned around and I focused in finance and accounting and I exited a Price Cooper's professional services firm. I was on the fast track to partner, and two and a half years later, I woke up and I thought, no mas, I'd rather be a waitress. I cannot take this. So I had to seek out what I wanted to do, and I knew two things that I wanted to make a difference that the work of my hands mattered. Yeah. And also that I wanted to go back to what I had thought about initially which is why do people do what they do in organizations? And so then I met a coach and it all clicked for me. It was like violence played and I was like, "What's that? I want to do that." Yeah. And then, you know, I took I joined the startup world. I was the CFO of one startup, the Head of Strategy of another startup, and in the meantime I was coaching all my friends for free. And then that all, you know, the dot-com world imploded. And then uh, I thought, great, I'm going to become a coach now. So I had taken coach training and I put one foot in front of the other. And now here I am 22 years later.
0: Oh, my goodness. Amazing story. And by the way, what up with the provost saying you can't manage people with tenure?
1: Like, uh, all right. Exactly. Well. Isn't you of all people, right? The whole notion of culture—it's right. a very people show you their they, they in their behavior and their communication. They show they reveal their belief system, and yeah. that was what his belief system was.
0: I think a lot of us, and I, I, I so relate to you early, early on, whether in school or you might be working out in school, get revealed to an, a wild culture and like how things yeah. should be because someone said so. Um, however. Yeah. I did not realize that was your pathway, that you went back and got your MBA, and then yeah. PwC, that is hardcore, especially if you're on a fast track to become a partner. Yeah. I mean, that's nuts. And yeah. what I love about your background, when you finally saw, oh, I want to be a coach, you still went in as a CFO at these startup companies. And I think yeah. that's a huge thing. I mean, I know that there are some younger people who are just starting on their, their career who jump on to these culture casts. And what I love about your experience, and I always say this to people, get that hands-on startup experience no matter what, because I think the world has changed so much today, but you know, I, I've been around for decades too in my career. But I think that startup hands-on experience, and especially you in a C-suite role like CFO, I think just adds to the experience and credibility when you talk about being this strategic partner, right, to a leader, to help them yeah. understand how they show up, and how they impact others.
1: I love that. Being able to walk in someone's shoes, right? Like having had that experience to walk in someone's shoes made me a better executive coach. And even when I I discovered coaching, I really felt like I'm too young to be an executive coach. And so I was happy to be able to get the experience. And we're all lucky because when you join a startup, you get really, really strong, significant leadership experience quite young in your career. That's absolutely true.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. And I think startup years, like one year in a startup equals seven years. It's kind of like totally, dog years, right? Totally. It really like is. You've accomplished seven years of things. So yeah. you then, you got into coaching as a profession, not coaching for free. Yeah. And then when did you feel like, all right, you were in the flow and in the groove? Like when uh, When was that moment? Tell us a story about, you know, where were you? Who were you coaching? And what was that moment?
1: Well, it's a really good question. I I will say that in the first five years, I mean, I started my own practice immediately. So it wasn't like I joined a coaching organization or went into some company. Right. So I was like on Friday, I said, I became a coach. I was already certified. But like on Monday, I became a coach and like, boom, what do you do? Right. So putting one foot in front of the other, I didn't draw a calm breath for five years. Like just being honest about what it takes to be a solopreneur. Yeah. And what it takes to figure out how to build your practice and put everything together, but I would say a moment that I was in flow was um, I, I, I I became a coach and a facilitator and a trainer internally to EMC, which okay. just, we got bought by Dell probably four or five years ago. But you know had been a, a really significant standalone company in um, the Boston area, so, you know data storage, data lifecycle. And they, all, they originally hired me um, to teach in their curriculum for business acumen, because I'm a CPA. Interesting. So they wanted me to teach the business acumen courses. And I thought to myself, perfect, I'm going to go do that. And then I'm going to work my way into leadership curriculum. Nice. Which I did. After three months, I was already facilitating and then designing programs in leadership. And then I got named one of the top 10 business, the co- top 10 coaches in um, Boston by women's business. Yes. I why are a badass? Thank you. And then one of my clients at EMC was like, I saw this thing. You're a coach. And I was like, oh, I have a marketing problem. <laughs> like how do they not right. know I'm a coach? Right. And so I said, yeah, that's actually what I do. And, they said, I want you to coach this executive inside the finance organization. So it was a vice president. Actually, it was a, at that time, a senior director inside of finance. He was, I'm sorry to say a big problem. He just was a problem Mm -hmm. he wanted to get promoted. He was super brilliant and also, and very had a lot of great things he brought to the table and also was a big pain. And so they couldn't promote him for all the different reasons, right? That we then together uncovered. And after, so nine months later, he was promoted because he earned it because of our work together super quick because he finally got, I was able to get through to him as in, I know you don't like all this stuff. And also if you want to get promoted, this is actually what's going to take the choice is yours. And, you know, he was a rational human being. And so that made sense to him. So he got on board. He used all his astonishing skills, which he had many to work on our coaching together. Nine months later, he got promoted. And everybody turned to me and said, what pills did you give Chris? And wow. why aren't you sharing? And suddenly the spigot opened with everybody who wanted to work with me because they saw what I was able to do for someone and their career. Yeah, And I would skip into EMC and see all my clients like two, three times a week. And I was totally in flow. And I knew like, okay, this is what I had wanted when I started, you know, seven, eight years ago when I thought about building my practice. Because I was making a difference. Yes, I was successful. Yes, I was getting recognition. These things all matter to me. But I was making a difference for these people in their lives. And I was making for a difference for the company and the people they affected. And that is what matters.
0: Yeah, I I think that totally matters. I love that you are making a difference for human beings, literally for that one human being, but then everyone that that human being impacts inside the organization. Exactly. Um, I, I do want to say, I, I think it's really interesting. And for those taking note of, ooh, I want to be like Alyssa, like be a coach. I did not know too, inside EMC, the fact that you were in as a facilitator and a coach, like a, a trainer on yeah. business acumen, which yeah. I think is really cool because I, I think that plays out. And really the book that you've written, you know, I think about leaders and what they really need to have beyond their kind of technical skills. And then the other piece around getting into leadership training and the fact that you've, you kind of crossed that spectrum in a company. And then now you're able to take all of that. And again, props and credibility again. And then now they see you in this magazine, like top 10 coach in the Boston area. And now, you know, this, and so what I love about EMC, and I know you talk about this in your book, and I know I've seen it having been a human resources and people professional for decades, you know, at least EMC had a clue. And what I mean by that is, hey, this guy is brilliant, you know, in terms of what he does as a senior director. But in order to really promote him to be a, you know, executive leader in the organization, he really needs to work on those skills, like the management skills and really, the magic pill was not a magic pill. It's about you helping him create some self-awareness about how people
1: experience him, right? Totally. Extremely well said. And that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Time and time again. I I just want to say one more thing about my experiences at EMC, because what I got to do, because, you know, like, you know, as a coach, does anybody want to come in and facilitate the business acumen curriculum? Maybe not. By the way, I kind of enjoy it because I do enjoy business and I do think, I do know that broadens my skill set. But not only that, but they wanted me to facilitate a whole bunch of programs for leaders and non-leaders. And I was like, well, I'm trying to be a leadership expert here, but okay. So I did, I talked to so many people at all walks of life inside of EMC, including the EAs I did a special program for the executive assistants, individual contributors, uh, middle managers across the spectrum. So I had a really strong understanding of what every level of employee was like and how they felt and their experiences. I mean, of course, the executives as well, the vice presidents and the C-suite executives, but all across the board. So it gave me a real insight into how, you know, sort of, let's say more junior people experience and think, middle managers experience and think, and senior executives. And you also understand you know, what congruence looks like or sadly does not look like. Right. And I I
0: love that too. Not only the fact that you taught it, it it is about understanding kind of what people are experiencing in that environment, right? Right. At EMC, especially when I love that you had a program for EAs and individual contributors and really all levels. It takes like, you know, I know as part of your process and we'll get into it, you know, there's data collection, right? You're going to get Feedback from all around that leader, but I think you had just a bonus in that it's like you had a feel of the culture, yeah. right? Of what was going on and how the leadership behaviors translated to the culture that these employees across the board um, were experiencing. Totally. And so, I think it's just such a good lesson learned and I hate to be such a nerd about it. But for those who I know really want to jump into coaching, it really does take like those reps and more specifically that grounded experience, right. To actually continue to add value in a way that you didn't, I don't know that you realize that, but on the outside looking in, it's like, wow, of course you're excellent at what you do. And like, that's such a great case example, you know, of like, all right, where you were in your flow and how that really worked. And I yeah. love this. Um, Jeffrey's on here. No magic pills to growth. That's right. Takes awareness and doing the work. So let's do the work. Yeah. Let's talk about how you frame out um, your book. And I love the way you organize it, which is about managing yourself and then managing others and then managing the organization. Yeah. By the way, again, when I say it's Bible, in terms of like how to be a leader. What I especially love is how to have an uncomfortable conversation with somebody. So let's talk about doing the work. So um, how, if you could just talk about, you take on a new client, let's say it's not EMC, you know, where do you start and how, and how do you do that?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So the, where I start, when I think about a new client, or an organization, anything, the question in my head is always, what's going on around here, right? There's always something going on. There's a story, there's a background, there's context, there's, you know, music in that person's head. What is that? So I want to, first of all, you know, just ask simple questions like what's going on or what's your business life like so that I can sort of paint the picture and get the context of what's going on. As people speak, you figure it out pretty quickly. Again, I've done a lot of work over this in the Mm. years, so I have a lot of pattern matching ability. So If I'm thinking about speaking with someone new, the most important thing to start with is trust and rapport, as in you need to realize I'm on your side, we're in this together, and I want you to understand the process and how it's going out, and I want to demonstrate that I can help you immediately. My mandate when I first meet somebody is to add value in 20 minutes, because that's going to set us up for success, yeah? Yeah. And that's going to set up success. So I usually try to get into something quickly around like, what should we do some coaching on or what's on your mind right now? And we do something really early, even if it's a small nugget, to demonstrate the impact coaching can have. Then what I like to do is 360 feedback. So that uh that that means feedback, getting feedback from people all around folks in the organization. So 360 degrees of a circle, when I'm working with the CEO or the you know, another executive, I talk with folks all around him or her. And Then I ask them open-ended questions about what's working about their style, what's not working about their style, what brings out the best in them, what brings out the worst in them, things like what is their communication style like, what is their influence style like, and then importantly at the end, what specific behavioral suggestions do you have to help this person be a better leader? And then they might say, oh, they need to be more collaborative. And then I'll say, okay, great. Behaviorally, what does that look like? Because we have different versions of what it means to be collaborative. Does that mean... Ask more questions, which it sometimes does. Or does that mean include more people, which sometimes it does? Um, So there's a lot of questions there. So then I ultimately have a report that I can share with the executive. And I can say, this is what I found out. Here's what they think you're great at. Here's what they think you need to get better at. And here are the specific behavioral suggestions to help you be a better leader. So now, just to be honest, normally their reaction is a teensy bit defensive, Mm. maybe unbelieving, maybe disputing. And, you know, it takes them usually, as I say, a minute to process. So that's kind of normal. I consider that to be a normal part of the process. But then typically people want to be successful, so they embrace it. And then we put together a coaching plan to help them work on achieving the goals of the feedback as well as achieving their own goals in this process. Amazing.
0: And I think, you know, you have all of these startup founders slash CEOs who now they are huge companies. Um, tell me about that process. Like, I get it. You, you come in and you coach a leader and you help them understand how people experience them. You know, Good, bad and opportunity, right? Like here's the opportunity yeah. and let's help you grow. I'm curious about what's that journey like when you start with a leader and how does that evolve as the company you know goes to these different stages of growth?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's kind of, you know, growth is never ending. Lifelong Mm -hmm. learning is lifelong. It's never ending. But if I think about kind of a 10 year, let's call it a 10 year journey or 12 year journey or seven year journey of a startup, you know, the truth is that you are like day one as a founder, CEO, your title is the same as it is at the end of year 12. That's amazing. But guess what? Right. It changes rapidly. So, initially, your job is to sell employees on coming to work for you. Like, why mm-hmm. should they work for you? Right? You got no yeah. reason. So, you got to spin it up and you got to be inspirational. You got to raise money. You got to get a whole bunch of people to believe in you, even though there's like nothing to believe in. Over time, your job becomes very much to actually coordinate all those people together and hold a high state. I was just having a discussion with one of my founders today yeah. about being demanding and holding sure. a high standard, and then helping them make that standard, and then beginning to figure out where can they handle it on their own, and where, mm-hmm. do, so where do you need to zoom out, and where do they need to your help and support, and sometimes your real strong direction, so you need to zoom in. And over time, you need to be aware of the fact that those executives that you hired early on, amazingly came and worked for you, but guess what? They're probably not going to be the ones who can scale with you over time, so kind of figuring yeah. that out. You need to take your communication scale from being super informal, like what are we going to do today, guys, to more formal. You're running a company now. People are counting on you. They're expecting a certain role in the front of the room. And, you know, you need to be able to communicate to people clearly what we're doing and clearly optimism and confidence without whitewashing what's actually going on. Hmm. So I'm just giving you like these little moments. I love it. Change is necessary as you go forward. Of course, at some point you go public and then all those stupid little systems that didn't really matter, really matter. That's right. right. And the things that, you know, that you probably used to wish weren't true of your little company now become like the most important things in terms of the communication process and terms of like a rhythm of the business. And you as a CEO need to embrace that. You don't always need to run that, but you need to embrace the importance of that. So there's like, you know, sort of think about the different stages of a startup yeah. founder.
0: Yeah, I'm hearing you talk about, yeah, the different stages and as a company grows, kind of what the learning curve for that CEO is. And I'll I'll be candid with you. I mean, I've worked in startups. I've also joined companies that have become like they're newly public and they rapidly grow to this Fortune 500. Yeah. And those systems that you're talking about and the capabilities of the existing leaders that you're talking about. Even post, you know, going public, there's an awareness that happens, I think, with a CEO when they go, huh. You know, and typically I think about it like coming in as a new, their first ever professional chief HR officer or head of HR or whatever, where it is actually going from this whole founder vibe. I'll just say that. And I'd love to get your perspective on culture and influence. Um in that growth trajectory that you just outlined. Yeah. But I, I find that coming in and helping leaders really then create that system. And it's this challenge of, I don't want to over-corporatize. I'll use that word. I'm quoting like a CEO that I worked with. And actually, you know, he was at GameStop. Um, and he's just like, I-, I love that you're here. We just acquired a new company. I, I know that we need to find the best of both but I wanna preserve this amazing culture that is you know, GameStop and EB Games that we purchased. And let's not over-corporatize with all these systems, right? Yeah. And so I'm curious, and I think that organization on its own already, I think you know, we had in our support center uh, 500 people. We also had a distribution center in the back. And mm-hmm. then we already had like 4,000 locations. And they wanted to preserve this founder-led vibe. Right. And so my question for you is like, and I think maybe it's different because that core could have been like 20 people and the same 20 people who started were still there. Yeah. But then now it's 500 people. And now they're like, how do we wrangle in this culture so we don't like lose that? And at the same time, set ourselves up for continuing to grow as a large organization. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, you you of all people know this is a complicated question, but I, yeah. I also would just don't even say like, what do you mean by culture, you CEO, right? Yeah. Because if what you're saying is we want to have a place where people enjoy being together and there can be some quirkiness and some spontaneity, great. Let's actually build that into the culture. Yeah. And also there are some mission critical systems and processes that we need to identify and then get ship shape and have them running. And we don't have to be bureaucratic bean counters about it. Yep. We can even have fun inside of a process. But everyone needs to understand, and this is back to culture, that people can understand that we have a process because we need a process. Because it's mission critical. Mistakes are not acceptable. Right. And so I can't rely on anyone's memory. I can't rely on, you know, human error is a real thing. Yep. So we're trying to kind of bake that out of the equation to make people feel more confident in this thing that we're doing, to frankly free us up to be more quirky in ourselves. Yeah. So I think framing it that way is important. I also think that, you know, recognizing the needs as as a company grows, it takes on more people who are not startup people. You know, like sort of three, four, five generations of startup people. You yep. got the early days, the Series yep. A, the hustlers, the doing everything, the jack of all trades, the jumping in. And then you've got the series b who kind of run the process and begin to create processes and they like to they always say like to create uh uh order out of chaos yeah right then you have series c who is like the builders right they know how to take that process and build something out of it and then series d and more like the executives who know how to operationalize that and mentor people You've got employees coming on in those days who want a career path, who want a 401k, who want health insurance, who want to know that they have a safe and secure environment. If they didn't want a safe and secure environment, they would have joined a startup. That's right. And as you get to be a large company, that's not you anymore. That's right. So it's kind of letting it be the way it is and not wishing it weren't that way. Um, I think it's important for founders to come to terms with their own grief on yeah. the fact that their little company is never going to be this like fun 20 person little thing anymore. Hopefully. Right. right like that's right.
0: that's success. Well, that's the whole point. I mean, yeah. I celebrate that. I, yeah. I do want to like pull in what you said. And you know, when you you go back to okay, CEO, when you talk about culture, what do you mean by that? Um, and it, it, it goes, it boils down to what I learned in that specific instance, at least, was all around behaviors, yeah. right? And so, yeah. and more specifically, the leadership behaviors and the environment that those behaviors were creating in an organization. I mean, it got really specific, you know, I'll tell you a little bit in that, like, part of my interview process, you know, to join as, like, the head of HR was to take this battery of assessments and spend like eight hours with two coaches, IO psychologists um, all day. Like I had, to, wow. they, they FedExed the test to me. I mean, this was old school, but then I had to fill it all, you know, complete it and give myself a day to do it. And then FedEx it back within like 72 hours. And then they come in and they do this whole assessment on you. And then based on that assessment, they gave that feedback to like the, you know, the, the founders. And it was fascinating to me because um, they just like, well, we really want you to join. You're going to be amazing, blah, blah, blah. The one thing that, you know, the feedback that I got on the way in as they are giving me the job offer was um, your communication style is inconsistent with our culture. I'm like, well, what do you mean by that? And that there's a specific thing that I don't know how I showed up in interviews, but it's like, you are very confrontational. And I'm thinking, okay, can you be more specific in totally. what, what it was that I said? And it wasn't so much that I went in like, you know, ready to throw Ah. down with people. (laughs) It was more about, you know, I would just state the obvious. And I think, um, and I want to get into this, right. State the obvious. And what I mean by that is like, if I see something that's inconsistent with what people are saying, I'm just going to say, Hey, here's the deal. And here's the the data that backs it. And they're just not used to that.
1: You know, um,
0: yeah. And so when I came in, and this whole how do we preserve this culture? What it turned into was really defining the leadership behaviors. And then they ended up translating into the values that we want to make sure as we bring leaders in, and then ultimately employees in to join this company. And then more specifically, promote people up into this you know, the top level was VP, and then it was like, you know, the top level of the organization. Um, it was fascinating that it did boil down to how do we not only coach people for this culture, but hire people based on the behaviors we're looking for. I mean, what do you think of that from a well, cultural standpoint?
1: Yeah, that's a lot. What yeah. I think about that is that's a lot. Um, I think it's fascinating that they called you confrontational, Yeah, which is a whole word, when I think it sounds like you were direct. Yes, and sometimes people get confused about the difference between direct and confrontational, right? That is a normal thing. Right. And so I think, you know, just that's interesting for you as data on the way in, right? Um, the other thing I would say is that, of course, and I, of course I love your process and it makes complete sense to have them, you know, actually observe their own culture themselves, right? Yeah. Which is as in, let's just observe and understand and assess and dive into what are your values you founders and what are the values of this company and how do I get to that? Well, let's just see what is really valued around here. What do we praise people for? And what do we kind of ding people for? Yeah. What do we think makes someone successful and what do we make someone think someone is not successful? What are peak experiences here? Right. So we sort of clarify all that and then it turns into not so much that culture is, um, uh, created. It's that culture is revealed. Yes. And that's probably what you did. And I'm sure it was satisfying for people. Although at times, back to that word confrontational, it may have been confrontational. Like, no, I didn't want that to be revealed. Well, I'm sorry. Yeah, you're right.
0: (laughs) I love what you said, though. It is about, okay, I'm direct. You know, and it's not about coming in. Because I think one of the presidents said, "Uh, that's odd you got that feedback. Because I love, it's like, I think the other way he described it was, wow, it's really fresh. Like you have a fresh perspective on things yeah, and that yeah. you see things differently or able to call it out in a way that people are afraid to, you know, yeah. or that they don't feel comfortable in doing that. Right. Um, I want to get into that too. So tell me about, you know, you you put together some good, I'll say, practice scripts, right? And I'll use that or talking points or framework on how to have difficult conversations. Yeah. You know, with people. And I'm gonna say, and and I know it's human nature to want to make others feel comfortable. Yeah. And and I think that's sometimes when I, I've heard this before to you growing up in my career, leaders who need to continue to grow up as leaders, they like to deliver that that shit sandwich. And what I mean by that, it's like, oh, here's this really nice thing about you and I love you. Yeah here's a thing that really bugs or that I'm going to give you feedback on, but then I'm going to sandwich it with this nice thing. And then people yeah. don't know, like, was that a good thing or a bad thing? What do I do with that? And so tell me about your process and why you did that. Like, And, and I'm sure you've seen like thousands of yeah. opportunities and now you're like, here's the secret. And it's, it's, in, you know, in your book.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you for calling that out in my book. In the (laughs) appendix of my book, From Startup to Grown Up, there are uh, 14 scripts to help you with delicate conversations, difficult conversations. And first of all, I think scripts are helpful because they help you get your mouth around the words. Yeah. Because you sometimes go into a difficult situation in your head. You're like, I'm going to sort of do it like this. And then what actually happens is the meeting. And you're like, (laughs) wow. Like, I didn't really know what I was going to say. So scripts can be very helpful. But to your point around the so-called... Feedback sandwich. <laughs> it, it, it comes from a good place. It comes from a good yeah. place. Because if, when you're giving any difficult feedback to anyone, why are you giving the feedback? Are you giving the feedback to vent? Hopefully not. Hopefully you're giving the feedback to change behavior and to make this yeah. person better. And if you come at it from that point of view, you want to be an ally. Basically, you want to show up as an ally to this person. Now, how do you convey allyship? Well, you say something nice, right? right. So that's that's the genesis, right, of the of the of the so-called sandwich. I, I hear you. It's and it's it's turned in the years in this formula, and that's the the problem. What I always say is like, you know, you sort of say, "Oh, I love the way you operate in this way." You know, you give them a compliment. And then you tell them what you actually want to tell them. Yeah. And then you say like, oh, but nice shirt you're wearing. Right? Like it's always <laughs> like it's, it's, so it's so wild. Yes. It's wild. And the point about that is this. You actually tell them what you want to tell them, which is right in here. It's the thing you want to tell them. So step one, actually be an ally. Be an ally all the time. You point out what's working about them. Show them how to do something. Ask them about their weekend you know, show that you care about them over and over and over again. So you earn the right to one day walk into someone's office and say, Hey, knucklehead. Right. Because if you have the right relationship with someone and if they view you as an ally and you have helped them, you can say anything to somebody and they'll take it like, Oh yeah, you're trying to help me. Right. So I think the whole point about like, first of all is like the feedback starts before the feedback, which is praise them, acknowledge them, care about them, actually care about them and show them that you're caring about them. And then second step is get clear on what you want to have happen. Because what happens is people like, Oh, and this happened in the meeting. And then, and it's confusing. Right. So it's actually this person had one role inside of this meeting that you really want to shape, let's say change. And so then it needs to not be the whole meeting and it needs to be, listen, when you, um, act that way in a meeting, when you cross your arms and kind of, and stop talking after you're so voluble, I'm just letting you know that everybody around you knows that something went wrong and that you are now upset. And that becomes a chilling effect of the entire meeting, which is problematic enough for an internal meeting, yes. but it's certainly difficult when there are customers in the room. So I just want you to know about that. And then I want to work with you to try to fix it. And even in my tone of voice just now, I'm not mad. And also I'm not trying to slam you. Yep. I'm really trying to help you and the company and this is good for your career. Otherwise you'll never know that you're like that. I will say, Marisa, one time I gave an executive feedback and um, I said to him, you know, they say you need to soften. He was a very senior executive in a very yeah. large company. They say you need to soften your style. And he looked at me and said, Alyssa, I have been told I need to soften my style for 20 years. Oh no. I know. Don't you think that I would have softened my style if I knew how to do that? <laughs> right? Right? So it's a lot. There's a lot baked into why people do yeah. what they do, right? And so I just think it's so important to have that, you know, that compassion and that that understanding that there's a human being over there. And even though they frustrated you when they did that thing, you're their ally, you're their manager. You're their helpmate, and you're the steward of their career in that moment. That's right. I I yeah.
0: totally agree with you, and I think you made such a point. And Jeffrey Beloli's on here saying the same thing about feedback doesn't start with "I've got something to hammer you with," right? right on, like and get in there and and do that although I've worked with leaders who are like that, but there is the point around how do you build trust and credibility with that human being? And I love that you use the word, there's a human at the center of it. Um, And are they used to getting positive reinforcement feedback from you generally? Right. Right. And it is that relationship building and leaders paying attention specifically to the employee that they directly support. Right. Like, seeing them acknowledging all the goodness that they're doing, sharing that appreciation when they are doing all the great stuff to help contribute to the business success. So that, and I also love what you said too, so that when you come in with that real specific of what it is, that behavior that occurred in whatever situation it was, like getting really descriptive about it, that you're doing it from a place of, and and I love how you just kind of model that, like you're coming from a place of care. Like I'm. First of all, I've got your back. I care about you. I want you to be successful. And hey, here's how the team or that that um, meeting, the people in the meeting, experienced you, and here was the impact that it made. And then you know, describing right. all of that, and then shutting up and yes. seeing what they
1: have to say about that. Right. Right. Exactly. Also, tolerating back to defensiveness tolerating a human reaction yeah which is no i didn't or well it's because of those bad things or whatever and then you as the leader or the person giving the feedback you can be a peer you can be parent right you have to accept that you just landed something on them and they need a minute to process yeah don't don't you said what happens is that mistakes you know mistakes leaders make right so they become defensive you get triggered and then you become defensive and now suddenly we're having a defensive discussion and um you know that just things devolve from there by the way if that happens often enough you become enemies yeah. <laughs> so that's not good either so you got to have your own emotional self control i think we don't talk enough about the the important superpower and skill set that's necessary of maintaining emotional self control
0: oh i love that can you define what emotional self control what that you know what that means like the yeah. meters on here
1: yeah. So first of all, it's really about having the self-awareness to realize that you're being keyed up or triggered or at times hungry or cranky or whatever that yeah. is. And then to control yourself, which means that you express yourself in a civilized way. I kind of want to say professional way, yes, uh, conscious way, intentional way. So someone comes back at you defensive, you get triggered, and then you just let loose and you become defensive back and you throw everything in the soup that you, you know, have been holding against them for like a year or whatever. And then things devolve from there. Or you recognize, you know, typically when someone gets defensive with me, how it is for me is I yeah. get defensive back. I get triggered. Mm. Mm. Good learning opportunity. All right. Okay. right. I'm going to practice right now in next week, two, three, four, when someone, I'm going to practice giving difficult feedback, when someone gets defensive, I'm going to practice not getting triggered and that's it. And that's how love you that. build the ability to then withstand, right? Things that just, just trigger you, that overcome your triggers because you practice. I love that.
0: Yeah. And I think that's such a good tip for those when you're like emotional self-control and it, it does start with self-awareness and how others, and especially in moments when um, people, yeah, might be feeling defensive or come at you and, or whatever. And by the way, it, it you can also practice it not in giving feedback. And, and what right. I mean by that is, you know, I, I think I learned this early on. It, it's a whole other discussion, but I was in this development course for minorities because I it was early on in my career, a minority high potential. And one of the things that they taught us, which I still carry with me to this day is it's not the stimulus it's the response. Mm -hmm. And in the context in which they shared, it was way different than I interpreted it. Theirs was, hey, look, if people come at you, stand down. weird. Versus, (laughs) um, versus, look, you have the choice in how you want to respond. You know, and I'm going to get into this whole, you know, you can be smart, there's the IQ part, but there's also the emotional part of it. Like, you know, um, the grace in how you choose to respond actually helps to diffuse a situation that you were hoping not to even have a situation created in to begin with, totally. you know? And yeah. so, um, anyway, I'm just responding to that. Like that's, I think a good practice that people should be aware about, you know, cause maybe they don't see that when they play it back in their heads, like how that right. conversation went. Yeah. Totally. A lot of it, a lot of it is how did you control and manage the conversation in terms of like, Responding to the emotions that are happening, you know, and I don't know. What do you think about this too? The balance between using facts and um, acknowledging emotions in conversations.
1: Well, that's everything, right? Right, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's <laughs> right? it. I would just say this about using facts. Facts, facts are helpful to articulate what's going on. So, okay. like for example, you were a jerk in that meeting. Oh, that's uncomfortable. Like, and, and, but that's, that, that's not going to work. That's going to make someone defensive. It's not descriptive. Right. It's not even accurate. That's it's not kind a, fact. Of a
0: judgment. It's a that's judgment.
1: Totally. So the fact is this kind of thing happened. And then you sat back, you really stopped talking mostly, and then you crossed your arms hmm. and you know, I'm no body language expert, but it just felt like you were shut down. Did you feel shut down? So Those are facts that support why I'm coming from this place. And then emotions, I think, are just also normal. Like I can imagine that you shut down because for some reason that what was going on was kind of really bothering you and upsetting you, maybe frustrating you. Is that right? Yeah. And so now we have to have a conversation about what's frustrating you and why you get frustrated all the time and or or not all the time, but only sometimes or whatever. We are all we're all a basket of of our humanity. Yeah. And so we have to also just acknowledge that, you know, people are a mix of great qualities and difficult qualities. And um, they, ever, nobody wakes up in the morning and hopes they do a bad job. Yeah, but they might wake up in the morning feeling off, or they might wake up in the morning and then have a fight with their spouse. Right. And so, you know, we have to acknowledge that there's humanity going on. And doesn't mean we have to be less demanding or lower our standards. But it does mean to be teaching and showing and role modeling the expectations we have for people, but having a little bit of room for people when they can't always meet those expectations.
0: Yeah, I love that. I love that basket of humanity. Like everyone is the basket of humanity that they are. And you're right. I think it's um, people have the intention to want to be their best, do their best. And life happens, right? And life might. throw you off in an instance. And then that's when the leader might catch it. And to have that, um, I think, yeah, being human, right? And just recognizing that's human beings that we're dealing with. It's not yeah. um, it's not linear always, not ever actually.
1: Right, not ever, exactly. Right. You know, I just read an article for Forbes about how managers can help their employees do the best work of their lives. And oh. part of it just recognizes that like, you as the manager, that is part of your job, to really help support them in doing the best work of their lives, not to slam them like we're talking yeah. about. Yeah, yeah, I
0: love that. Um, quick question too on coaching, and I yeah. I always wondered about this in my career. Typically, um, leaders that I work with want to engage an executive coach for another leader when it's a a development opportunity, really bad behavior versus, hey, this is someone who we believe has runway in the company. How do we get them ready? They haven't shown any weird signs yet of bad behavior. Like applying a coach when things are going well versus applying a coach when they need to turn something around. I mean, what have you
1: experienced in your career? You know, I've experienced both. And um, there's a reason you're trying to – like it it goes without saying – that when you have someone who's great and you hire a coach for them to help them be better and hopefully short circuit and shortcut their learning from like three years to three months. Yeah. Amazing. Astonishing. You get so much value out of that. That's incredible. Also they appreciate that you got them a coach. I mean, there's like a lot there that's great because you're building loyalty, but there's a reason if someone has some bad behaviors and is not, not fitting into the culture or is being a jerk or um, keep sabotaging themselves or others, or who knows, or, you know, hasn't built trust with their people. Well, all right. How can we even fired them? Right. So I don't know. (laughs) Like you must want to keep them for some reason. Right. So if you want to keep them, it's probably because you see their potential and you want to get them out of their own way or, and this is where you've abdicated your role. You haven't given them the feedback. You're going to let the coach handle that. Right. And work with them on it. Or, um, you are not sure you've been, you've given them every chance. Okay. And those are reasons. And and all three of those reasons exist. I, I do want to go back to the first reason, which is I see good in this person. Yeah. I want to help them get out of their own way. I've tried to do it myself. I can't do it. I don't have time to do it. I'm going to yeah. get them a coach to help them do it. There. If you abdicate your management, that's a very expensive way to solve your problem. Totally agree. Right. It does solve your problem. <laughs> I guess oh I would my put it gosh. that way. Yeah. I hear
0: you. And I know, I mean, yeah, when leaders are like, I see it, I want to help them get out of their own way. I just don't have the kind of time to do that. Or, you know, maybe they need help doing that. They're not experienced at doing that. And so, right. and so they could
1: use the role modeling themselves, actually. They can sometimes right. learn from the coaching process themselves.
0: I was going to say, and maybe they themselves may need a coach as well.
1: Yeah, that's what true. I think, right? Yes, that's usually true. <laughs> well, I
0: know, I know, we're coming to the top of the hour, but I wanted to just boil it down to, you know, your expertise and also the leaders who are engaged in this call, um, or or this culture cast. Like, what is the one piece of advice that you would give leaders here as they, um, as they practice growing other people, right? Developing Great. other people.
1: Great question. I'm going to give you two pieces of advice. I over deliver. Two pieces of delivery. Number one, build self-awareness. Get an understanding of how you show up. Remember that you are the expert in your intention. Everybody around you is the expert on your impact. Huh. So figure out your impact, align it with your intention, and you'll be a better leader. That's number one. Love it. Number two, remember what your job is. People think like, oh, my job is a traffic cop. My job is to get these things done or to deliver results. As a manager, your job is to create an environment for people to do the best work of their lives. Do that. Have your mindset around that. And that's going to lead you in the right direction.
0: Oh, my goodness. I mean, this is like I'm going to start quoting you on this Forbes article. So first of all, um, I love the fact that you said you are the expert in your intention, and then everyone else is the expert in your impact. I yeah. love that, the way you describe self-awareness. And then I think secondly, in what you said, and I'll end it with this, I love in terms of creating culture that the role of you as a manager or as a leader is to enable people to do their best work of their lives. I love that. Oh, my gosh, that's really simply put. Right on.
1: Thank you. That's the way I see it.
0: Well, Alyssa, it's been so fun. Uh, so fun. A, yeah, so fun. I can fangirl with you right now. and Right back about, at you. Yeah, yeah, and talk about just all this goodness And within 45 minutes of your career. But I thank you so much for joining me on this culture cast. And I'm going to invite everyone, I think you know this next friend who's coming on, for the next CultureCast, which is next Wednesday, April 5th. At 11 a.m. Pacific time, our friend Jeff Madoff, Jeffrey Madoff.
1: Oh, Jeff Madoff. Yay.
0: We're going to talk about creating a culture of creativity, but also legacy. So stay tuned, everyone. And um, for now, everyone, we'll see you next time. Take care. Bye.